Take your Bibles, please. Let's go to the book of Titus. We were looking at Philemon, so just one book before that, Titus. If you hit Hebrews or James, you've gone too far. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, then Titus. If you need a Bible in that chair in front of you, that black Bible, go to the back and find page 167 in that black Bible. The book of Titus, this is one of the pastoral epistles. Titus, I'm gonna read and we're gonna study this morning. Actually, I'm gonna do an introduction to Titus. I'm gonna tie in, excuse me, an introduction to Titus um, uh, with the first four verses in the book of Titus, so I'm gonna do that. Let's read uh, Titus Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, again, page 167 in a black Bible, Titus chapter 1, 1 through 4. And just so you know, too, I'll, I'll, I'm going to um, uh, merge, kind of translating from the Greek into English. So I'm reading from New American Standard, but some of it might sound a little bit different because I'm, I'm remembering some things I learned in Greek. So I, I just do that on purpose because it just helps me. I'm not trying to be like, oh, look at me, I know Greek. It just helps me as I'm studying the text. That's why I do that, and I, I I program my mind to do that. So just in case you're wondering, uh, chapter one of Titus, verse one, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before times eternal, that at the proper time, He revealed his word in proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the command of God our Savior, verse four, to Titus, my true child in the same faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. It's fun when one of my kids show me something that is very important to them. I enjoy seeing that. For example, one of my kids uh, told me she learned how to ride her bike without training wheels. I mean, that's a big deal for a kid. I mean, Travis is still hasn't gotten to that point yet. I'm just picking on you today. I don't know why. You'll get there. But she had to show me. Dad, come on. I want to show you. It's out there. And it's, I'm like, yeah, all right, good job. It's great. I loved it. It's wonderful. It's one thing to say something, it's another thing to actually demonstrate it. You may say you can do a handstand. My kids like to do, try and do handstands. So. But can you really do a handstand? You may say you're a Christian. But are we, as Jesus followers, demonstrating faith? Demonstrating the truth? That's what the book of Titus is about. And we're going to be in the book of Titus for the next eight weeks. And that includes Christmas, December 19th. I'm going to work that in. Eight weeks we're going to be in the book of Titus. If you miss anything in the book of Titus, don't miss this. Titus is about demonstrating the truth. And a a command, demonstrate the truth. Display the gospel. Live out Christ in your life. 
trying to say it different ways. Show Jesus at work in your life by the way you live. Demonstrate the truth. Here's some uh, other ways to say this. Our orthopraxy, which means right living, is an outflow of our orthodoxy, right thinking. Right living flows from right thinking. This is what the letter from Paul to Titus was all about. It's Paul's purpose in writing. Orthopraxy flows from orthodoxy. Redemption leads to sanctification. Another way to put it, God saves us so that he may change us who belong to him and that we may demonstrate his grace. Demonstrate the truth. You see that in chapter 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So God saves us so he may change us. We now belong to him. And so we can demonstrate, we may demonstrate his grace, demonstrate the truth. Uh, Another way to say it, we've been redeemed from lawless deeds so that we be zealous for good deeds. So we we must pursue sound doctrine so it will infect us like a virus. No pun intended. It will infect our lives leading us to sound godly living. Except this virus doesn't go away. It stays with you the rest of your life. We've been redeemed from these lawless deeds so we'd be zealous, passionate for good deeds. Realizing that it's not the good deeds that save us. Good deeds don't save you. Good deeds don't add to your salvation. Good deeds don't take away from your salvation. It's Christ and Christ alone. We trust Christ. He died. He rose. I trust in Him alone. That's the gospel. And God redeems us from these lawless deeds so that we be a people who are zealous, people who who belong to Him, zealous for good deeds. Christian conduct is always grounded on sound Christian doctrine. Sound doctrine is the basis for sound living. And friends, where you have poor doctrine, you will most likely have poor living. Where doctrine is weak, the church is weak, and living out the gospel will be weak. So he writes this to Titus, Paul does, because Titus was in Crete. What's this whole thing about Crete? We know about Crete, we can see it on the map. 156 miles long, 30 miles wide. Known at that time in the Roman Empire to be notoriously untruthful and immoral because of the flagrant immorality in Crete and the reputation within the Roman Empire. 
Paul stressed to Titus the need for members of the Cretan church to godly righteous living, to sound doctrine leading to sound living. And this was Titus' role to organize and, and supervise the church, firmly exercising his authority as Paul's representative. Titus, you represent me, says Paul. We'll look at that in a moment. Put aspects in order. Uh, refute false teachers and dissenters, but also call the people to replace any immoral behavior with a passion for good deeds which stems from sound doctrine, which stems from a sound understanding of the gospel. So the church in Crete was disorganized. It was leaderless. I mean, we do the first four verses, the next week, he's into elders. Talks about elders. It's disorganized, leaderless. They were prone to sinful behavior and indifference. Titus needed to appoint doctrinally and morally sound elders and insist on sound doctrine and godly conduct among Christians because Christian conduct is always based upon sound doctrine. So Paul's point in this letter, leaders should be concerned about the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth according to godliness. God's people are urged towards godly living which is based upon sound doctrine that gives us the hope of eternal life that sound doctrine, the gospel. Titus, lead them in that way. So orthopraxy, excuse me, flows from orthodoxy. Right living stems from right doctrine. Demonstrate the truth. And today, in these first four verses, we will see about the truth that this really is the truth. This really is the truth. We're not making this stuff up. We're not messing around. This really is the truth. This whole thing, oh, that's right. I have to make sure in parentheses I put the veracity of Scripture. Veracity means genuineness the realness of Scripture, the genuineness of Scripture, this genuinely is God speaking. This whole thing about God, Jesus, our Savior, faith, truth, godliness, truly is the truth. This is the real deal, man. God's own very character and name is at stake upon what Paul wrote And we stake our lives on this. We ain't messing around. It's all true. And in this longer greeting, kind of abnormal for Paul, Paul says to Titus that this really is the truth. What he really proclaims is genuine and true. Thus he called Titus, you speak this same truth to God's people because You have the authority that I have, Titus. I'm giving this to you. This really is the truth. We're not messing around. This is serious. How serious? 
want you to notice something in the text. Verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, that's Paul the Apostle, the Apostle of the Gentiles. This was written by him. We don't doubt that. Notice, he says, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Stop there. Go now down to the end of verse 3, which I was entrusted according to the command of God our Savior. Do you see something here? You notice something. He says, Paul, I'm a slave and an apostle. And then at the end here of verse 3, he says, I've been entrusted according to the command of God. Notice how slave connects with the word command. Notice how apostle connects with the word entrusted. Do you see that? He's doing this on purpose. So slave, apostle, entrusted, command. A slave is commanded, right? God's my master, says Paul. I'm his slave, he commands me. An apostle's a sent out one. He's sent out with a message and the message he's entrusted with it. So what's he saying? What is Paul saying to Titus in just these couple words, phrases? He's saying this. Titus, listen. I'm devoted to God and I have authority from God. Think of it as like a a juicy hamburger. You gotta have the nice bun on top and you gotta have a nice bun on the bottom which makes it a nice juicy hamburger. Well, it's not a real hamburger, right? Unless you're me. I put in a tortilla. We won't get into that. But anyways, you get a nice hamburger from Colt Grill and it's not a commercial from Colt Grill although they do have good food. You get a hamburger from them and it's it's nice and juicy. You have that nice bun on top and the one on the bottom and in the middle is going to be the meat. You'll see that in a moment, the meat. But he's doing this on purpose. He's saying, I am devoted to God. I have authority from God. I'm a slave of God and an apostle. And he's saying this to underscore not just his role but his authority. And since he wrote this to Titus with authority, Titus, guess what? You have that same authority. You need to have that same devotion. I'm giving this to you. You tell the people what I'm telling you. God's slave, Jesus' apostle. I'm commanded. I'm entrusted with this. Paul obeyed his master. He spoke the word of God, the message of the hope of eternal life. So Titus, what I'm writing to you is from my devotion to God and I have authority from God to write these things to you in order for you to teach and prescribe prescribe this truth to God's people. This is for real. I'm not making this stuff up. So right off the bat, right in the very beginning of this, Paul is trying to stress this authority he has. He's saying, Titus, I need you to understand something. I'm commanded by God. I'm his slave. I'm devoted to him. And I have authority from him. Slave, command, apostle, 
and trusted to do what? Here's the meat. First, to do what? To further the faith of God's elect. Look at the next part of verse one. A slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, says for the faith of those chosen of God, literally according to, or another way you can translate this is, in the interest of or to further. Paul's apostleship was in the interest of furthering the faith of God's elect. God's elect, the election. Election is God deciding by his own free, gracious will who he would save based upon his sovereign choice, not ours, passing by the others. That's what election means. It's all by his grace. So what is the result of God's election of his people? Faith, which is the response of trust in the truth of the gospel. And this truth was written to further your faith, to further your trust in Jesus, to solidify it, to make it stronger. So as we go through the book of Titus, your faith is going to be strengthened. Your faith is going to be made stronger. Paul wants to further your faith, Christian. He wants to further your trust in Jesus. Well, not just in this letter. But isn't all of God's word meant to further your faith? Should we not as Christians be in God's word daily reading his word because from his word he furthers our trust in him that he's a God who always keeps his promises? Should we not? So he's a slave who's commanded. He's an apostle. He's entrusted to do what? To further the faith of God's elect. Second, to further knowledge of the truth. Notice the next part. According to the faith of Joe's chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, he wrote to further our faith and to further knowledge of the truth. Our faith is not fideism. Fideism means you just have a leap of faith that's outside of reason and logic. That's ridiculous. We're not fideous. It is based on true knowledge. So this letter will increase your knowledge of the truth. So we should dive deep into God's word to know and to understand. Do we dive deep into his word so we can know and understand in our love and our relationship with Christ, with the living God? It's to further our faith. It's to further our knowledge. But notice what he says the next part, the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. So this knowledge pertains or produces in us godliness. This is a word used in the pastoral epistles. What does it mean? It means piety or our beliefs in action. To be a God-fearer 
The outward evidence of true faith in Christ, a godly life demonstrates true faith in Jesus, a godly life demonstrates the truth. So as your faith is furthered, as your trust in Jesus is made stronger, as your knowledge of, of the Lord God increases, what that should produce in us is godliness. We don't gain, at least we shouldn't, gain theological knowledge just to have that knowledge. We gain it to direct us to demonstrate the truth. We dive into deep, sound doctrines so that we would have deep, sound living. So it would infect the way we live our lives. So it's not simply about having a knowledge of Christ and the truth of the gospel. That knowledge of the truth will demonstrate itself itself in a godly, Christ-like, God-glorifying life. It's belief in action. The very word faith is a word of action anyways. See, this was the highlight of Paul's ministry. This was the highlight of his message even. And he commissioned Titus, have the church of Crete trust Christ and to live out that truth and holy, godly living because right doctrine leads to right living. See? I'm not as dumb as I look, huh? So as we go through this short letter, your faith is gonna be furthered. Your knowledge of the truth will increase. It will increase you towards godliness, or at least it should lead us to that because sound doctrine leads to sound living. So slave, command, an apostle is entrusted. It's based on what? Verse two. In hope of eternal life or upon, literally, upon hope of eternal life is based on what? Hope of eternal life. See, there's a question if this hope of eternal life, the phrase qualifies apostle or if it should qualify the word knowledge. It's hard. I think it connects to the word apostle. So in other words, if it does connect to apostle, then this is the message of hope that Paul speaks to God's elect in his ministry. Paul's ministry is founded upon this hope. It's founded upon the hope of eternal life. And, and keep in mind what hope is. Hope is not, well, I hope this guy gets done pretty soon because I'm really hungry type thing. I hope this guy gets done because I have my donuts are supposed to be done by 11.45 type thing. I know you're thinking that, Mike Johnson. (laughs) His hearing aids are off, that's okay. No, our hope is confidence, expectation. It's based on God's promise. We'll see that in a moment. Our hope is confident expectation. Hallelujah. And now you say it. Hallelujah, like donuts? Never mind. It's confident expectation. It's not I hope this is gonna happen. I hope this doesn't happen. Our hope is that it's gonna happen. It's just a matter of time. Hope of what? Our hope of eternal life. Eternal life, remember that's fellowship with God. Eternal life's not so much a place. It's it's not so much a thing. It's relationship fellowship with God through Christ Jesus and it's this hope of eternal life upon which Paul's apostleship was founded and he was called to spread this hope to God's elect. Spread around. 
Because he was a slave. He was devoted to God. He had authority from God to speak this. And what about this hope? So his, this apostleship is based on the hope of eternal life and this hope is based on God's promise or, or really God keeping his promise. Because look at verse two again. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promise before times eternal. This hope is based on God's promise. God will always faithfully fulfill his promises because he cannot lie. That phrase there in the word, and there in Titus, he cannot lie, it's one Greek word which means trustworthy. God's trustworthy. His very character is at stake. If any part of the truth of Scripture is wrong, erroneous, then throw out the whole thing. Because it's false. It's not. God's very character is at stake. He will fulfill His promise because he's faithful to keep his promises. And he made this promise, Paul says, before the world was in eternity. Before time's eternal. That was his purpose. God's promises are totally reliable. His very character is at stake and these promises are grounded in his eternal decree One writer says this, the promises of life in eternity future are anchored in eternity past so I may have firm hope in the present. That's a great quote. His promises in the future, they're anchored in eternity past so now you have hope now. God knows what he's doing. You don't. God does. He's going to keep his promises. This is where we come to this word, the veracity of Scripture, the genuineness of Scripture. This word is inerrant and infallible because if it's not, then God's very character is at stake. Look at you. You're on top of it. Thank you. God's very character is at stake. If any part of this is wrong or erroneous, then it's, it's, no, it's no good. We stake this upon who God is as the faithful, trustworthy God. So again, verse two. In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promise before time's eternal. Then look at verse three. But at the proper time. He manifested, so that manifested goes back to God, or another way you can translate it is He revealed. So God manifested in time and history His promise. He determined the right, perfect time to reveal the truth. Notice, He manifested, He revealed His word. One writer says, quote, God makes known the truth about eternal life Oh, thank you so much. The word here, when he says the word, it refers to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The gospel. 
He revealed his words. All these promises, this promise of the gospel, Jesus coming to die for sinners on behalf of sinners, that promise, it came to fruition at the right time. And notice he says, his word in the proclamation. Actually, it's in the preaching. Okay, Russo, preaching. Paul linked the gospel message to his apostolic communication of that message. The content of this message of hope was done in and through apostolic proclamation. He's an apostle. It's entrusted to him, he'll say. So notice how eternity and time kissed each other at the speaking of this gospel message. The reliability of of God's promise of eternal life, i.e. to save sinners, was demonstrated in time to the clear public preaching of the gospel. And notice Paul says, I was entrusted to do this task, there at the end of verse three, with which I was entrusted. It's a deposit given. It's like he was entrusted with, with five million bucks. He's entrusted with this. Okay, here you go. And Paul's like, ah, what do I do with this? Wow, I've never had this much money. What do I do? It never ceased to amaze Paul that, that, that God entrusted this to him. You remember in 1 Timothy what he said? I was entrusted with this gospel. But remember what he said? Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. What does he say? Among whom I am the worst. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. I persecuted Christians. I wanted Christians to die. And he trusted me with this. Me. Wrapped up in one word. Grace. It was by his grace that he entrusted Paul with this vital, important message with the truth of all people to commit this divine truth to Paul? Really? And he says, I was entrusted with this according to the command of God, our Savior. Here's that, the command. There's that slave part again. There's the bottom part of the hamburger. This entrusting came from God himself. Notice he says God who is the Savior. God saves. That phrase, God our Savior, it occurs nowhere else in his letters except here in Titus. He says again in chapter 2 verse 10, chapter 3 verse 4, even chapter 2 verse 13. Yes, God is our Savior. He sent his Son to save And are you here today and you need to trust in Jesus to be saved? Have you repented and trusted in Christ? God can be your Savior. Christ can be your Savior. Jesus can save you. He says, come. My very character is staked upon this truth. Come and I will forgive you. Come and I will give you life. That's the gospel. Paul wasn't making this stuff up. 
This is how we should, his people, live. This is how, this is how serious and how vital it is. So may we demonstrate the truth and sound godliness. And then notice what he does here in verse four. Verse four, he says, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Titus, he says, a true child in that same truth. Who was Titus? Who was this guy? He probably was from Syrian Antioch. Uh, Probably a, a, a Gentile. Converted under Paul's ministry. Paul thought very highly of Titus. Calling him his brother, partner, fellow worker, and then here, my true child. He, he truly was, Titus, a demonstration of the gospel in his character and his conduct. He was an esteemed and trusted co-worker with Paul. You see that in other places there in the New Testament with, in Paul's letters. And, and, and Titus, uh, from what we're able to gather about him, he had a forceful personality. He was resourceful, energetic, tactful, and yet skillful in handling difficult issues and situations. You should see that in chapter three. And he was effective in soothing people. He was loved by Paul, being his true child in the same faith. Notice he says, in a common faith or the same faith in that Jews and Gentiles both trust in Jesus Messiah. And this is important. Christianity is the fulfillment of biblical Judaism. And he's saying, Titus and himself, we are one in the faith, in the truth. There's not two separations here. That's important for him to make known within the church of Crete. There's no separation here. He's my child in the same faith, in the same truth. There's no disagreement. They were not at odds with each other here. And then last, notice what Paul does at the end of verse four as a way to give us two promises from God's word, grace and peace. Verse four, grace and peace from God my, the, God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Grace and peace, grace, God's undeserved favor, which is what we need to save us, a peace, which is what we have with God who saved us. Grace, God's election is grace. Christ's death is grace. The Spirit awakening our hearts, regenerating us, renewing us, that's his grace. And we have peace with God, the God who saves us. We have peace with him. Both are what one writer says, quote, the essence of what Christians need. And both the Father and the Son gave these to us. God is our Savior. And notice he says, Christ Jesus, our Savior. Which I think is perfect. A perfect passage for us to walk through as we come to the Lord's Supper where you will be able to remind yourself of the gospel of grace, of how you have peace with God, that God keeps his promises, that this is all true. This is not made up. This really is the truth. And God has staked his very character on this by sending his son to die on your behalf as a substitute. 
So our orthopraxy is an outflow of our orthodoxy. Right living flows from right thinking. God saves us so that he may change us who belong to him. So we will demonstrate the truth. This really is the truth. And we can remind ourselves of this when we come to the Lord's table. Not necessarily in a way where we have to make ourselves worthy of it. Because you're not worthy of it. You never will be worthy of it. But Jesus is worthy. And he's the one who makes us worthy. So when you take the bread and the juice, you're reminding yourself of the gospel truth. It points you to the gospel. It points you to the fact that I've given Jesus my life. He has me. And the way I'm gonna display that is when I take that bread and I drink that juice, it's a way where I'm eating, I'm assimilating him into my life. I've done that already. It's just a reminder of that. And then it's, Lord, is there sin that I'm, I'm not confessing, I'm not repenting, am I holding something back? Am I trying to hide from you and not opening things up to you? That's what we do. Lord, I'm open and bare before you. You know my heart. I remind myself of the gospel truth. I remind myself of your grace. And I'm a sinner and I should, I should be condemned, but yet you show your grace to me. That's, that's the heart of the Lord's Supper, okay? And, and by the way, if, if you're here, you say, I'm not a member of this church, but if you come from a church of like faith and practice, and we would probably prefer you're baptized by immersion, but coming from a church of like faith and practice, you partake of the Lord's Supper with us. Don't think you have to be a member of this church. But this is for us as Christians. If you're not a Christian, you shouldn't take this. And if you're a follower of Christ and you have something against another believer and you've not made things right with them, first go demonstrate the truth. Make things right with that person. And then come next time to partake of the Lord's Supper. This is a reminder of gospel truth to us. To remember what God has done in His grace. Let's take a moment, let's pray. And so Father, we... We examine our hearts and we know we are not worthy. We know we are sinners in need of your grace. And so we say thank you for your grace. And these elements are a reminder of what Christ has done for us and what we needed him to do for us. And how we do not bank our salvation on our goodness we do not bank our salvation on our good deeds. We do not bank our salvation on our good thoughts or our good words. We bank our salvation on Jesus and who he is and his finished work for us on the cross. Therefore, having been justified by his blood, we are saved from God's wrath through him. And now we're reconciled to you. We're now your friends. We have eternal life. We have relationship with you. Remind us of this. Help us. Spirit of God, help us. Remind us of this. And may it, and may it spur us on to godliness. May it spur us on to holy living. May it kindle in us a flame 
for proclaiming the gospel. May kindle in us a flame, being zealous for good deeds, not because it adds to our salvation, but we're just so enamored over what you've done for us. We're so thankful. So I encourage you at this time, examining your heart, reflecting on the promises of God and the gospel. Take this minutes or so, whatever. We know we do this each week. It's time of silence for you to think, ponder. And after a few moments, we'll sing the first verse of the hymn that we enjoy singing, the communion hymn. But take just these few moments examining your heart and then your mind reflect upon the truth of God's word revealed now his promise in Jesus. Would you do that now please? Thank you.